0: John 4, we'll begin reading in verse 43, and read to the end of the chapter. Appreciated speaking of John, Brother John's message, his remarks this morning fit very, very nicely with what I'll be bringing to you out of this passage here in John, the fourth chapter, beginning reading in verse 43. We'll read to the end. Follow me if you would. Now, after two days, he departed from there and went into Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet hath no honor in his own country. Then when he was come into Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did at Jerusalem at the feast, for they also went unto the feast. So Jesus came again into Cana of Galilee, where he made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus was come out of Judea into Galilee, he went unto him and besought him that he would come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then said Jesus unto him, Except ye see signs and wonders, ye will not believe. The nobleman saith unto him, Sir, come down, ere my son dieth. Jesus saith unto him, Go thy way, thy son liveth. And the man believed the word, Jesus had spoken unto him, and he went his way. And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Thy son liveth. And then inquired he of them the hour when he began to amend. And they said unto him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said unto him, Thy son liveth. And he himself believed. And his whole house. This is again the second miracle that Jesus did when he was come out of Judea into Galilee. Well, we have been studying the chronological life of Christ. And I hope that you have learned some perhaps things that you didn't know before already in our study. Is that we learned that the synoptic gospels do not really begin their history of Jesus' ministry... Until after the imprisonment of John the Baptist. Seems that both Matthew and Luke take that as their starting point. What John is telling us here is of an earlier ministry of Christ, a Judean ministry. Took place at Jerusalem at the Feast of Passover. John is clearly not in prison. In fact, John is still down in the area baptizing. And now Jesus is coming back to Galilee, which will sort of pick up the story where the Synoptic Gospels began. So we are sort of looking at an earlier Judean ministry of Christ preceding what we find in the Synoptic Gospels. Now on his way from Judea to Galilee, from south to north, he passes through that area of the country inhabited by the Samaritans, and has that very wonderful encounter with the woman at the well there outside the Samaritan city of Sychar. We see that they implore him to stay with them for two more days, for several days, apparently he stays for two more, until he finally departs and continues his journey on up towards the north, back to Galilee, which is sort of the home base of his ministry. Now, I must, first of all, in this text, call your attention to a difficult verse. It is verse 44. Notice verse 43 again. Now, after two days, and this is the two days that he stayed in the Samaritan village of Sychar, after two days he departed from there and went into Galilee, for Jesus himself testified that a prophet hath no honor in his own country. Now, you've read that verse in the Synoptic Gospels elsewhere, But the question arises, what exactly are we being told here and why is this verse found where it is? And there's a number of ideas floating around as to what exactly this is signifying. And I really would not normally waste time chasing down these various theories, except for the fact that your interpretation of what is being said right here is so extremely important to your understanding of the entire passage that we have just read. This is really, I believe, the key. This is something that needs to be understood. What are we being told here? Why is John telling us this right here? That he is departing and going into Galilee, for Jesus himself testified that a prophet hath no honor in his own country. The question is this. What is Jesus talking about when he means or says the phrase his own country? That's the problem. Now, there are some who say, well, Jesus is in the process of leaving Judea down to the south and going north to Galilee, back to his home area. And so when he says that a prophet hath no honor in his own country, he's explaining why he has left Judea. That Judea is really his own country, his home country, if you will, that has not received him, and because they have not given him the honor, that should be forthcoming to him as the Messiah, he is going to leave them and go north back to Galilee. All right, that's one interpretation. The only problem is, it just doesn't seem to fit the facts. Judea is never spoken of. When this passage is used elsewhere in the Synoptic Gospels, it's always Galilee that's in view. It's speaking of Nazareth as his hometown, that he hath no honor back there at home. John never even mentions the fact that Jesus is, in fact, born in Bethlehem of Judea, right outside of Jerusalem, that this could be construed somehow as Judea being his own country. So it just doesn't jive with the facts. Secondly, another interesting fact is that Jesus has indeed left Judea, heading back north to Galilee, but not because he's been rejected, if anything, because he has become too popular. I mean, look back in chapter 4, verse 1, when therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John. You remember back into chapter 3, this little bit of friction that arises between John's disciples and Jesus' disciples because, oh, everybody's going to him. You remember? That's what John's disciples are saying. So this is hardly a uh, rejection of Jesus's ministry. If anything, Jesus is leaving Judea and going back home in Galilee to avoid this kind of friction. So the whole interpretation that somehow the Judea is this own country that will not honor him just doesn't seem to hold water. Well, let's look at the other alternative. If it's Galilee, and, and that's the more reasonable one, after all, that's the one that is used elsewhere. When this phrase is being used, it's always Galilee or Nazareth in Galilee that is in view. Maybe he's saying that Galilee is his own country and he has honor elsewhere but no honor in Galilee. You with me? Maybe that's what he's saying. Well, the problem is the next verse. Verse 45, Then, when he was come into Galilee, the Galileans received him. They warmly welcomed him, you see, having seen all the things that he did at Jerusalem at the feast. So in other words, you say, well, wait a minute. How could he be talking about Galilee, the fact that he's not going to receive any honor there, when, in fact, when he returns to Galilee, they're waiting on him with open arms? Well, I think there is another alternative, and I believe, in fact, the words of Jesus need to be understood in this other way. That let's not forget that Jesus, at this point in time, is not in Judea. He's in Samaria. He has been, shall we say, amazingly well-received by the Samaritans. The Samaritans who were just as bigoted and prejudiced towards the Jews as the Jews were towards them. The Samaritans who viewed their Jewish friends, and I use the word loosely, as uh, renegades not rejecting the worship of the Pentateuch, which was the only part of the Bible the Samaritans did receive as authoritative. Worshiping up there at that innovative center of worship in Jerusalem rather than the old center of worship where Abraham worshiped down in the hills of Samaria. In other words, the Samaritans who had no reason whatsoever to have anything to do with Jesus at all has in fact begged him to stay and remain in their city and to teach them as long as he will. And he stays there for two more days, you see. In other words, Jesus, when he utters these words, and why this is inserted here, is that we're not contrasting Judea with Galilee, or Galilee with Judea. We're contrasting the reception that he receives in Samaria, with an inferior reception that he's about to receive in his home, his own country of Galilee. In other words, yes, he's being received in Galilee. But he's not being received in Galilee the way he was received in Samaria. Let me explain. There's been a lot of water under the bridge. Uh, I, I, I need to sort of point out, too, that you have to understand that a lot of times writers, especially biblical writers, when they had no punctuation, no chapter and verse divisions... Oftentimes they used other means of completing a cycle, or what we would say summing up an, an era. Uh, y'all are familiar with the chiastic mode, where, where you, is chi, chi, the X in Greek, and you sort of go in and then you turn around and come out? Y'all, you know, you're not interested, I can tell. No, no, let me try again. Let's put it this way. You have to understand that the Eastern mind thinks generally in a circle. The Western mind thinks in a straight line. And our idea going from today to tomorrow is going from, you know, where I am now on a timeline to tomorrow. You know, here I am, there I'll be tomorrow. To the Eastern mind, it doesn't think that way. It goes around in a circle. It's sort of like our clocks. Tomorrow, after today, we're right back where we started from. We hadn't gone anywhere. We're just right back where we started from. And John, being an Easterner in thought, as he is expressing these things, certainly at the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but not obliterating the personality and nature of John himself, that he's using these figures of speech. And I want you to notice that when we began with Jesus' first miracle, remember we've got his first miracle mentioned and then his second miracle, right? We closed with the fact that this was the second miracle that he had done in Galilee. Where were we when we did the first miracle? Where he turned water into wine. Where was he? Well, he was in Cana. Where is he now? Well, he's back in Cana. Do you see? In essence, we have gone full circle. We have sort of completed uh, what what the linguistic people call periscope. We have completed a full circle. We have. It's sort of like there was the bookmark on one end of this, and now here's the bookmark on the other. Miracle number one, miracle number two, and we're right back where we started. And let's remember what has transpired in the meanwhile. From the time of the first miracle, when he turned water into wine, what has happened? Well, he made that long trip down to Jerusalem to observe the feast of the Passover. And while he was there, many believed on him when they saw the miracles that he did. Now keep in mind, first and second miracle that we're talking about are first and second miracles for Galilee. In the meanwhile down at Jerusalem, he's done a number of miracles, People believing on him when they saw the marvelous and miraculous works that he did. And if you want a demonstration of that fact, here comes Nicodemus trotting to him by night saying, we know that you're a man sent from God. No man could do what you do, these miraculous things, unless he was sent by God. But Jesus did not commit himself. Do you remember this? There was something wrong with their faith. Go back to chapter 2, John 2, verse 23. When he was in Jerusalem at the Passover in the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. Chapter 2, verse 23. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men and needed not that any should testify of man for he knew what was in man. There was something deficient about this faith that existed because men had seen these miraculous works that he had done. And if you want to know what was missing, was this just some minor thing in John chapter 3, we find one of these. Nicodemus, who comes convinced, believing in Jesus, you see, in at least some sense, believing that he's a man sent from God. Why? Because he says you couldn't do these miraculous works and not be. In other words, Nicodemus is a sample of that group that believe on Jesus when they saw the miraculous works that He had done. And Jesus, rather than commending Nicodemus for this kind of faith, says instead, except you be born again, you'll never see the kingdom of God. Not only are, is this kind of faith not placing you in the kingdom, you're not even near it, you're not, you know, you're not even in the ballpark, you must be born again. Do you get the sense that here is people who have witnessed these miraculous things and they are enthralled, entranced by what they have seen Jesus do? It has indeed created a kind, a sort of faith. But it falls far short of saving faith. And Nicodemus is the the example of this. Now... Jesus is returning to Galilee. Right? Who welcomes him with open arms? Look, look closely at the text again. John Ford, In verse 45. Then when he was come into Galilee, the Galileans received him, again, having seen... All the things that he did at Jerusalem at the feast, for they also went unto the feast. Here is the same crowd that had been at Jerusalem, same bunch, affected as it were by what they had seen Jesus perform down there at Jerusalem. And no wonder they are waiting on him with open arms. Here he comes and he's coming home and now we can get him to do some of the stuff that he did for them. He can do it for us. And in the meanwhile, where has he come from? From Samaria. Where he did no miracle. Where men have received him and believed him more for what he said, what he testified, than for what he has performed and done. You see the contrast? That's what I believe John is telling us is that he is leaving behind the fruitful place. The place where people are actually seeing who he is. That was the conclusion of the woman at the well. I perceive that you are a prophet and not just a prophet, the prophet. The prophet that Moses was talking about. I believe that when Messiah comes, He's going to tell us all these things. And Jesus said, I that speak unto you am He. And she believed it. And she went into town and she told everybody she could find. He's out there. He's out there at the well. And they came streaming out of town to see this person. And they welcomed Him with open arms into their city to stay there and teach them. Do you understand? They are receiving Him as the Messiah sent from God down in Samaria. But up in Galilee, they're receiving him as the new miracle worker, the first century David Copperfield. Going to put on a show for us. Going to do some of that stuff you've been doing down there for those Jews in Jerusalem. You're going to do it up here now for us. We can be sort of the center of attention. Do you see then the sense at which Jesus say that a prophet is not without honor saving his own country as it's stated elsewhere? That here, when he comes home, oh, they're wanting, they're receiving him all right, but on the wrong basis. And as an example of this, and I believe that's where the next story fits into the picture. Having understood that, then you'll understand what's going on here when this certain nobleman, who lives actually at Capernaum, about four miles away, comes to our Lord at Cana, and he says that his son is dying. And he wants Jesus to come heal his son. And Jesus to us sounds awfully cold. Awfully calloused. When he says to this man, except ye see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now notice our text says that he spoke to the man. Verse 48. Then Jesus said, said Jesus unto him. Singular. But Except ye, the you here in the Greek is plural. In other words, this is not just a statement that is directed towards the man himself individually, but it is a statement that is directed towards the people in general. That here is just one man, one man's request that is sort of symptomatic of the whole problem up there is that they're looking for Jesus to come and back to their community so that he can do some good stuff for them. And here comes this man, basically coming on the basis of human need, human suffering, saying, I need you to do this. Let's go back to miracle number one. Cana. First time. This is Cana 2. Let's go back to Cana 1. Cana 1, he did his first miracle, turning water into wine, and what prompted it? Well, his mom came to him saying, they've run out of wine. They need some wine. I mean, that's the suggestion. She doesn't ask, but it's clear that's what she's insinuating. They've run out of wine. Do something. Now, whether she intended for him to perform a miracle or not, I don't know. I doubt it at that point. If this is his first miracle. But it's the idea that we're asking you to do something. Take care of this embarrassing situation. Now he comes back to Cana. And a man comes saying, I need you. I need you to heal my son. Now, lest we be overwhelmed with the fact that Jesus sure reacts callously here and coldly and seemingly condemns this man and criticizes this man, let's not forget that he was touched by the heart of this father and he did grant the request of the man. Do you understand what I'm saying? Let's don't get so wrapped up in this that, well, what a terrible guy. If my son was at the point of death in Capernaum and I knew that Jesus was coming to Cana, trust me, I'd be there knocking on the door asking him to come and heal my son. I understand that, I understand the, the, my heart goes out, and Jesus' heart did too. He was touched as it were with this request, and He in fact grants the man's request. But nevertheless, nevertheless, do you not perceive that there's something wrong here, there's something else going on, that this is not His real agenda? That his real purpose in this world is not to raise every sick son from his deathbed any more than it is to open the eyes of every blind man or unstop the ears of every deaf man. That yes, he does those things and we're thankful for that. But at the same time, that's not his real purpose. That's not his real mission. And to simply have faith in him as a miracle worker misses the point. In fact, may I say it this way, that you can believe on Jesus as a miracle worker and go straight to hell. Because you have not comprehended the purpose of his mission. Neither have you comprehended the purpose of his coming. Well, at any rate, you know the rest of the story. And by the way, you are familiar, I'm sure, with a couple of other accounts. One over in Matthew Is it 8 and 1 in Luke 7? The healing of a centurion's servant. That's very similar to this incident. Y'all know what I'm talking about? You remember centurion came and said, Heal my servant. And Jesus uh, started in that direction. And the man said, Oh no, you don't even need to set foot in my house. Just say the word and he'll be healed. And he was healed. There are some who suggest that this is exactly the same incident, but I don't think so. There are numerous, numerous differences. This man is a nobleman. The word means a royal official, and most likely someone who was tied to Herod's household, household servant of some sort. Remember, Galilee was not administered by the Romans. It was under the rule of King Herod. Secondly, it is his son that is at the point of death. In the other event, it was a servant. And most interestingly, in this case, the man is, shall we say at the very least, seemingly reproved for his request. How is it that you won't believe unless you see signs and wonders? In the case of the centurion, he is congratulated, he is basically commended for having great faith. So there's numerous differences between that account of the centurion servants being healed and this nobleman's son being healed. I believe it was two separate incidents. Having said that, let us note what now happens. The man turns to go home. Now we're told that it was at the seventh hour that all of this happened and again the question arises, is John using Jewish time or Roman time? Jewish time, Jewish reckoning would put this then at seven um, the seventh hour of the Did it say seventh? Yeah, seventh hour of the day, which would be, say, one o'clock in the afternoon. What that doesn't explain is why it's the next day that he met these servants coming to tell him what happened. You know, Capernaum's only four or five miles away. Now there are some suggested that, well, see, that shows his faith. He didn't hurry on home. He believed that Jesus, what Jesus told him would be the case. But the text doesn't say that or indicate that. If John is using Roman time, which it appears that he normally does, Roman time worked like our time, starts at noon, midnight, so forth. The seventh hour would be seven in the evening. And that would be far more likely since you didn't go on journeys in the middle of the night. You've got no way to see what you're doing that then the next day he would have been going home, met the servants, who told him, yes, your son is better, he lives. And when did the fever break? Well, it broke yesterday at the seventh hour. Now, it's a remarkable miracle. A healing, what shall we say, in absentia. <laughs> you know, he's not there to rub some stuff on him, or not there to speak, or to lay his hands. Here is a word that is being said in Cana that affects a healing in Capernaum, four or five miles away. Now that's a remarkable miracle. I don't want to in any way minimize that. You you do understand that this is revealing something about the authority of Jesus Christ. exactly what the centurion said when Jesus started towards his home to heal that servant. And the centurion said, well, wait a minute, I know how authority works. I'm in the military. You ever been in the military? Steve, back there, he was in the military. Steve, uh... When the commander-in-chief wanted something done, let me ask you, how did it work in the military? Did he get up and do it, or did he order you to do it? They want that pile of rocks moved from there to there. Um, He didn't get out there with a shovel. He told you to do it, and that's exactly what the centurion is saying. I'm a man under authority. I know how authority works. When I need something done, I say to my inferior, go do it, and he does it. And he's saying, I perceive you have the same authority. Just say the word, and it'll be done. You don't need to come to my home. And that is a remarkable understanding of the power and the authority of Jesus Christ. And Jesus commends him for his great faith. Because he understands that this person is a person with this vast authority. And he doesn't need to come and use this means or that means. He can just say the word and it's done. This incident shows us the same thing. But I want to center this morning. It is morning. Barely. I want to center upon applying this text to us in making this contrast between a faith that simply stands or falls by virtue of what it sees, the miraculous signs, the wonders, and a faith that saves the soul, a deeper faith. Can I do that in closing? And you understand closing being a term that's very, very relative in this congregation. There are many, many folks who say that what lost people need to do is just believe. Just believe. And they'll quote John 3.16 as their proof text. Just believe. But it's interesting that of all the gospel writers, it is John, in particular, that takes such great pains to show us that not every believing On Jesus resulted in salvation. Of all the gospel writers, he's the one who very clearly makes that distinction because we find these statements that he spoke. Look look a little later in John chapter 8. Here's another example. Lest you think I'm making such a case of just the one back there in John 2. Look here in John 8. John 8.28, then said Jesus unto them, he's in a discussion with the Jews. John 8.28, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall you know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father hath taught me, I speak these things, and he that sent me is with me. The Father hath not left me alone, for I can do always I, I do always those things that please him. In other words, here's a statement of Christ concerning who he is. And verse 30, as he spoke these words, what? Many believed on him. Well, according to John 3.16, what John told us back in chapter 3, these folks go to heaven, right? Not quite. In fact, their faith in Jesus lasted about 30 seconds. Talking about temporary faith, this is about as temporary as it gets. Then said Jesus, verse 31, to those Jews who who believed in him. These believing Jews, he said, If ye continue in my word, then ye are my disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And they say, we don't believe it. That's how long their faith lasted. You don't know what you're talking about. You don't know which end is up. We are Abraham's seed. We are never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou? Ye shall be made free. Do you understand what I'm saying? Of all the Gospels, John is the one that gives us insight into the fact that there is a faith in Christ that falls far short of saving faith. And it is particularly this faith that is based on what men saw, the signs and the wonders, and that's what Jesus is saying, except you see this, you're not going to believe. Unlike the Samaritans, These people's faith has to be constantly buttressed by what he does. Now, that kind of faith is never satisfied. I don't care how many miracles that you've seen or think you've seen, a faith that stands on the foundation that we believe this to be true because we've seen this miraculous thing always wants to see more. Never content. As Solomon said, the eye is never full, and certainly it's true in this area. Never content. You see it in the New Testament record. In a little bit, we're going to be in John 6, where we, these people will sit down, and Jesus takes the loaves, five loaves, and feeds 5,000 people. They will not only see it, they'll eat it. They'll be participants in the miracle. Surely that's going to satisfy them, Right? I mean, they've been there. They saw it. They ate it. Well, look at John 6. That happens up here in the first chapter, the first part of the chapter. Look in verse 30. John 6, verse 30. They said, therefore, unto him, what sign showest thou then that we may see and believe thee? What dost thou work Ain't that amazing? These are the people who just saw the miracle of the loaves. They followed him from one side of the lake back over to the other side of the lake. And they're saying, well, you know, before we're going to believe you, you've got to show us some sort of miraculous sign. What are you talking about? You just ate of the miraculous sign. You just experienced it. You were participants in it. Do you see what I'm saying? It's never enough. Moses chastised Israel over in Deuteronomy 28. Because, my friend, if there's ever a generation that saw miraculous works, it was Israel coming out of Egypt. I mean, I I can't imagine another generation that saw more miraculous stuff than that generation. And it wasn't just hit and miss. It was ongoing. I mean, every morning they got up and here's manna. Sitting there on the ground for you. But Moses in Deuteronomy 28 says that for all you've seen, You've seen these great miracles. You know, it's just gone on and on for 40 years now. But God has not given you a heart to see, a heart to perceive. He's not given you eyes to see or a heart to perceive. You don't get it. You've seen the miracle, but that's it. So that's the first reason. The second reason is that such a faith A faith that stands or falls by what it sees miraculously done uh, basically arises from man's appetite for the supernatural. In other words, we would think, well, somebody wants to see a miracle from God. They must be a spiritual person. Ha. Ha. Everybody wants to see the miraculous. Why do you think all these programs are on TV about, you know, touched by an angel? All this stuff. Where do you think that the impetus behind the New Age movement comes from? Everybody is infatuated by the supernatural. I mean, just let some... You know, reflection on somebody's refrigerator look like Jesus' face, whatever Jesus' face supposed to look like. But, you know, just let the light hit somebody's refrigerator door and somebody think they can see Jesus in the refrigerator door and thousands will gather. And you know I'm not exaggerating. It's exactly what will happen. And that is no indication of spirituality at all. Every person has that craving. I, I thought about using it as an illustration, and then I thought, well, I won't. Now I'm thinking, yeah, I will. Uh, I say, let's suppose, let's suppose, you got your choice. You have door number one, door number two this morning. When you come to church, you got door number one, door number two. Then Door number one, you go in here and hear this guy, rather boring fella, Talk about the gospel. Talk about Jesus. Talk about His death. Talk about sin being saved from sin. Or door number two, you can go in this other room and we can watch people be raised from the dead. We can watch sick folks, people can't walk, jump up and walk. Now I say, give you your choice. Which one? And I know you're sitting here saying, "Well, I wouldn't fall for that," but don't you kid yourself. Of what is the most enticing thing out there? Is it the facts of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Or if I had the opportunity, would I go through door number two? Because I want to see. And the fact that I want to see it is not an indication that I'm such a spiritual person. That arises from a carnal desire to explore the supernatural. Reason number two. Reason number three is that this faith is deficient because it is so consumed with what Jesus can do than with who Jesus is. Now, indeed, and I don't want to belittle the miraculous things that Jesus did. I, I don't want you to go away saying, well, we don't need him to do all these things. God, in his word, has told us that these miraculous works that Jesus did bore witness who he was, and they do so in a marvelous way, but you can become so infatuated with whether Jesus can heal or whether Jesus can put money in my pocket, that we miss the fact of who he is. If I say what's different about the Samaritans and the Galileans, it's this. The Samaritans received him as the promised Messiah. The Galileans received him as a wonder worker they would turn his ministry into performance, into a three-ring circus. And they would entice men by performing stunts and tricks like evil Knievel draws people to Hell's Canyon, you know, back there a few years ago in Idaho, to see the stunt, to see the trick, if you will. It works on the same basis. Reason number four. Such faith is deficient because it is far more interested in the sign than it is in the meaning of the sign. It's interested in the sign itself rather than in the meaning of the sign. You, you do realize that John's gospel is unusual too in that there's just seven miracles recorded in it. Hey, you go to Mark and you have seven miracles and seven verses. John's gospel is different. There's seven miracles and seven sometimes they're called signs. They're obviously designed, chosen, to present to us something about Jesus. And usually, it's illustrating an aspect of his teaching. For instance, when he's talking about, I'm the bread of life, he's just blessed the loaves and fed 5,000 people. He's produced bread. When he's talking about, I'm the resurrection and the life, he's raising Lazarus from the dead. Usually, you see, there's a connection here. But this kind of faith fixates on the sign and never inquires to the meaning. What's the meaning? What is this actually telling me? It would be like this morning. we got a nice sign right out here in front. Ken. Well, let's go out there and gather around the sign and sing hymns and so forth. We say, well, well that's nuts. That's just the sign. In the same sense, do, do you see that in essence it's to gravitate to the miraculous thing and never see what's behind it? Oh, I could uh, need to stay here, and I'm tempted to, but time won't let me. Just remember that these miracles were intended to convey a deeper understanding to who Jesus was. And that just to receive the sign did not necessarily do anything for a guy. Do you realize you could be healed by Jesus and go straight to hell? Do you understand that Lazarus, raised from the dead, was going to die again? And we're going to have to stand in judgment? In other words, the point is, the sign, the miraculous work, whatever it might be, was a temporal thing, was a physical thing. It was not the real thing. The real thing lay behind the sign. Alright, reason number five. Well, I've already said that. Well, we're through. <laughs> <laughs> that was it. They were just five. Let me remind you that there is a whole movement. I, I couldn't read. I-, I really chose to, on the bulletin this morning, the fact where Jesus says, Except ye see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Because there is a whole movement called the Signs and Wonders Movement today. There's a movement that goes by that name. It's the Vineyard Movement, basically it's called by that name, the Signs and Wonders Movement. The main idea is this, that it's not enough to just preach the gospel. The mechanism, the mechanics of that movement is basically you spend the first half of the message or the service proclaiming the facts of Christ, and then you spend the second half of the service demonstrating the power of Christ. In other words, you give people not only the facts, but you demonstrate before their eyes the signs and wonders so that they will believe those facts. Isn't it interesting, I uh, was in Canada this past summer, and they were telling me about what was going on now in Toronto at the old airport vineyard church there, originally from this same group, by the way. And they said, have you heard the latest? And I said, no, I don't hear a whole lot about what's going on in Toronto. We hear a lot about what's going on in Pensacola, but not about Toronto. And they said, well, the latest thing is, is that God, you see, is performing these miracles in their services there. He is converting the fillings in their teeth into gold. These people are claiming that God is converting the fillings... In their mouth to go, and in fact, they said the ushers have flashlights now, going around checking in the mouths to see if your fillings have been miraculously converted from whatever it is to gold. And said literally had reports of people down on their hands and knees looking for gold dust in the carpet. Now you you think I'm making this stuff up? It's not. I'm now. By the way, hear the same thing going on down in Pensacola, of course. Can you imagine you're sick, you're an invalid, you're sitting in a wheelchair in those service hoping that God would somehow heal you, allow you to walk, get up out of that wheelchair, and what God's doing is changing feelings in people's teeth into gold. If that's not a yuppie, middle class, slant on things, I don't know what is. Oh, my friends, thank goodness for the fact that God has given us signs and wonders. He gave us signs to authenticate the ministry of Christ. We're not lacking. We've got them right in front of us. But I'm telling you this, folks. If one generation of miracles, fully attested by eyewitnesses, sealed in some cases by the fact that they died saying these things and believing these things, if that won't convince you of who Jesus is, a new generation of miracles isn't going to do it. You see, saving faith has a moral and ethical dimension to it that this other faith doesn't have. You can believe that Jesus is a miracle worker. You can believe He heals folks. You can believe that He puts money in your pocket and it never changed you. It never touched the heart. You're still the same old person. You used to believe some new facts. But true saving faith changes you from inside out. You can't believe it and not change. Not be born from within. You can't fall in love with He who is holiness personified. And not have a love for holiness. You can't believe the gospel and be a proud, arrogant cuss. You just can't do it. To surely believe the gospel of Jesus Christ will empty you of your pride and your arrogance. You see what I'm saying? You don't have to do that. This other kind of faith is just caught up in this miracle worker. But oh, my friend, saving faith, where you see that, you see a man that's been born again, born of the Spirit of God, and he's not like what he used to be. And saving faith... Results in the only miracle that really matters. Have all these other things? See all these other things? Experience all these other things? Go straight to hell. I'm afraid that what has happened, what has paved the road for all this this infatuation with signs and wonders, is the fact that, by and large, through about a hundred years of Armenianism, we have removed the supernatural element from salvation a person being saved as John was saying a moment ago it's it's sort of like a salesman just trying to get you to make the move it's like going down buying something at Walmart it's nothing supernatural we're just appealing to your will we're just marketing a product and we can convince you that you need this product and you'll choose to go get it and when somebody goes down to Walmart and buys a new pair of socks do we say oh my what a miracle no you say well they needed socks and so it is when men Walk down the aisle, embrace Jesus as their Savior. It's just marketing a product. The slicker the better, the more advertising the better, but that's about it. My friend, you see, we've removed the whole element of the supernatural from this whole area of salvation. That, my friend, when we see someone truly saved, we have seen a miracle. We've experienced if we've experienced salvation in life and life in ourselves, we are walking, breathing, testimony to the miraculous power of God. And I look around this room and I see face after face after face and I say, My lands, it's a miracle you're here. It's a miracle that you're here, that you're still here. And I think of where you would be were it not for the miracle working grace of God. Be in jail, in prison, in the gutter. Oh you may be a CEO in some corporation, but you'd still be just at a lost. As any man that walked upon the face of the earth, were it not for the fact that there was a miracle came into your life, turned you upside down, inside out, turned your world upside down, and when God was through with you, the stuff that you used to do and love, you now regurgitate. And the things for which you once had no taste whatsoever. Beloved. The name of Jesus meant nothing to you if anything. A byword, a curse word. And now it's the name. The precious name. That you love to hear. And to repeat. You say preacher. Tell me. Where do I go? Where do I find that kind of thing? Only one person I know can do that for you. And that's Jesus Christ. You're going to have to find Him. But I guarantee you, you come on that basis, and you'll be received. That's why He came. That's His purpose. That's what He's doing here. To give life to sinners lost and undone. That's why He came. That's the purpose. You flee to Him. You cry to Him. My friend, there's a reality here. He reigns in heaven on a throne and He can change your heart. So I leave you in His hands. I point you to Him. There's the invitation. Come unto me, He said. Not to the preacher, not down to the front. Come down here. Come to me, ye that are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Let us pray. Father, magnify your word to us this day. May our lives not be content with a faith that falls short of that faith that truly saves and transforms the soul. Lord, we confess our own carnal desires. For the supernatural, we've detected in ourselves as well as those round about us. We're not immune from it. We're creatures of our culture. Father, may we be wary. May we keep central to our thinking the real purpose and the real reason that Christ came. May we rejoice in what He has done, all right but the work that went forth on Calvary's cross when He shed His blood to save His people from their sins. May we never get wrapped up in what's second best or third best, but oh, may our eyes see the glory of the wonder of that work done there at Calvary's cross. And may we never get over what you have done in our hearts. If we have tasted of your grace, if we are indeed yours, may we never get past it, beyond it. May we never forget. Remind us of the miracle and where we would be and what we would be without Jesus. Lord, if you're dealing with hearts here today, oh, impress upon them their need of Christ. Where they stand outside of the grace of God under His wrath with certain judgment facing them. And may they, Father, turn. Would you draw them by your Spirit? Cause them, cause them to hear and heed and come and find life. May you do it for Christ's sake. Magnify Him in our sight, we pray. In His name we ask it. Amen.